Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos or sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay guys, I did a very, very personal podcast with my wife this week, and if you haven't seen it, I would really encourage you to do so. Because I, I, you know, I just get down on just some real talk about recovery. And I just wanted to let you guys know, the day following having done that, now shooting this video for you, um, it, it really was helpful to me to do that podcast. <laughs> that was not an easy podcast to ramp up to, but it was, uh, and the, and the, the messages of support and, um, and feedback and stuff that I've gotten from you guys on that so far have been absolutely amazing. So thank you very much for that. It really does mean a lot. All right, so now let's get on with your questions. Leanne Ross. I just watched your video, An Open Message to David Miscavige, and it got me thinking. I understand that OSA monitors the internet for anything negative about Scientology. What happens when they find it? Is OSA the only ones who see it, or does Miscavige see it as well? If he does, how much does he see? Do they pass everything up to Miscavige? Do they do some sort of assessment and only pass things that rise to a certain level to him? Does he have a list of some kind that prioritizes what OSA should look for or what he wants to see at the moment? Would they ever not send something up to him to shield him from seeing it? Finally, do you think there is any chance he would have ever seen your video? Okay, whoa, girls, a lot of questions. Um, but I totally get where you're coming from. And here's the thing, I, am, I never worked at the Office of Special Affairs. I will not be able to tell you with 100% surety that the, the answer I'm about to give you is 100% uh, accurate, because I don't know. Uh, I only know a lot of information that I've learned from people who did work at the Office of Special Affairs. So, um, what I can tell you is that, yes, an assessment is done. Uh, and not everything goes up to Miscavige. Uh, there's just no way. There's no way that could possibly be occurring. They definitely triage the assessments. On what priority basis, I actually don't know. Um, I mean, imagine um, that the very first thing is going to be any threat to David Miscavige personally. Not the church, not Scientology, to him. <coughs> Excuse me anything like that is going to be at the top of the list, right? So personal suits, legal matters of any kind that directly threaten him or his status, um, or bad uh, negative public relations uh, media, let's say, about him directly, right? And not every, again, not every little thing, like real threats, not just somebody complaining about him. Uh, and I think that's where my video would fall, by the way, is I just like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever, Shelton's made a video calling out David Miscavige, and okay, great, you know, yawn. <laughs> I pretty much think that was their response to that video, right? I put it out there for you guys much more than I was putting it out there for him. To this day, I'm happy to have him watch it and respond to it, but I never had any illusions that he was going to. And I think I even said that in the video. Um, okay, so yes, definitely threat assessment on him, then on church operations. And even that, I would not know what the priority list is because the compartmentalization of information at that level and what kind of things the Church of Scientology or David Miscavige himself might be involved in could be very, very far-ranging. 
we don't really talk about this very much, but the, but the Church of Scientology does have investments. And I could not even tell you what one of them would be, but I know that they exist, and I know that the church invests in, you know, and wants a return on those investments. So where does it have its money? How is it, you know, what's it doing? It's, you know, we're never going to know. Um, unless somebody comes out and tells us. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? So, um, okay, so assessments like that are going to uh, be the second thing on the list. It's going to be like operational threats, uh, real serious, tangible public relations uh, problems or issues. And, and I, somewhere on that list, whether it's going to be the third item on the list or somewhere on this, you know, uh, multiple list will be um, legal threats that the church is involved in somehow, like from parishioners, like Danny Masterson, for example, right? Now, whether Danny Masterson is innocent or guilty, I couldn't say, but there is certainly a lot of testimony against the man, and uh, it doesn't look good for him. Uh, but the LA district attorney won't, you know, lift uh, their, pull their finger and get that going. It's just literally sitting at the DA's office and has been for over a year. Um, and Danny Masterson stands accused by, I think, four women of uh, sexual assault or rape. So that's not a small, small matter. That kind of thing would be front and center on David Miscavige's desk the instant that it was happening. So that, so that kind of threat is what I'm talking about when I'm, ta I'm talking about real tangible threats, not just videos or, or even, you know, necessarily books. I mean, I don't think the church was, you know, particularly uh, threatened by um, the book that I produced about it, right? Which is, I think, well, of course, <laughs> one of the best books out there. Um, but... I am positive that it was front and center on David Miscavige's threat list that day when they found out that Leah Remini was publishing a book, uh, Troublemaker, right? Because that's, that's international market. That is television appearances. That's print media. That's print ads. There's, like, there's so much exposure on a, a property like that versus me self-publishing my book on Amazon, right? So it's, a, you know, it's definitely, right? So... You know, Leah's going to get all the attention on that one. I honestly don't think I've ever crossed David Miscavige's desk. Uh, to get to your final question there uh, on this, I don't think I have have ever ranked or rated as, as important enough on their radar to get there. And like I said, I've always said, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I'm not doing this to try to, try to create trouble for myself that way. Um, they just don't see me as that kind of a threat, right? The only the only time that uh, that there was response, direct church response, like unquestionable, it absolutely came from Scientology, was the website, the the hate page that was put up on me uh, after I appeared the day after I appeared on Leah Remini's uh, Scientology in the aftermath. So, you know that kind of timing is not coincidence. Um, so anyway, that's. You know, that's that's my, that's those are my suspicions about all of that. As far as any further inner workings or how exactly these lists can be would be compiled or what kind of things Miscavige would be being told about, you know, I, I'm only willing to conjecture so far. So that's that's pretty much my answer. So I hope I hope that helped though. Orange Crush, when you were on staff in Minneapolis, where did you live and with how many people? Were others in the same room? Who paid for meals or cooked? Did you have TV or a vehicle? Could you easily have blown at any time provided you had enough money? 
Okay, this is an interesting question. Um, I wasn't actually on staff in Minneapolis, by the way. I was a Sea Org member who was on mission in Minneapolis. So I was out there for many, many different missions and projects over a period of years, but I was never staff there. I was I was Sea Org from Los Angeles. So just, it's a, you know, might seem like a tiny point, but uh, it, it's an important one in the world of Scientology. Uh, we lived in hotels, uh, is where we lived. We would get um, long-term um, hotel accommodations and uh, like extended stay places with kitchens and stuff like that. And um, I would do shopping. I remember I set up uh, a Christmas thing one time and figured out Thanksgiving or something, I think, when that happened. Um, we would go, we would do a certain amount of grocery shopping, but mostly we were eating out. Um, and that money, of course, would come from the from Los Angeles, right, from uh, or from International, uh, depending on which project or mission I was on. But usually, that's how uh, that's where we would get put up. And uh, we did not have TVs. Uh, or no, there was a TV in in the in the one in the the final mission I was on. Yeah, actually, no, all the missions and projects I was on because we were staying at hotels. There were TVs all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on certain projects I, where I was with fellow staff at, from my level, uh, we would absolutely watch TV like, all the time, right? But not only when we were in the apartment, which was only at night, uh, when, we were, when we were secure, right? Because we were at the org, uh, we would get there about 8.30 in the morning, and we wouldn't leave there until 11.30 or midnight. So it wasn't like we were, you know, lounging around <laughs> watching TV for a real long time or seeing movies or something, right? Uh, never did pay-per-view, anything like that. We would rent a car because we had to get around. Uh, and that was, again, all missions and projects, and especially the one where I was out driving around going door-to-door -to, -door to recover people. That was, I, I, you know, I obviously needed a car for that. So could I have blown at any time? Yes, physically, uh, the, the you know nobody was keeping me in a prison. Uh, I could have driven off, or I could have done any number of things. Had the thought ever occurred to me to do so, which it never did, and had it, I still wouldn't have acted on it because I was married. Uh, I, all of my friends, everybody I knew outside of my parents, were in the Sea Org. So the idea of just, you know, I, I was in a position at this point by Minneapolis of, you know, driving all over the United States, seeing all kinds of people, you know, seeing all kinds of country. I mean, just places I'd never even imagined and seeing how big the country was. So I had plenty of opportunity to just disappear, plenty of opportunity, but it never even dawned on me to do that because all my connections and responsibilities and... Uh, and what I honestly considered my duty. Uh, I didn't take that lightly when I was a Sea Org member. You know, I, sometimes I took some of the job functions a bit lightly because I thought, you know, especially as the years went on, I, I, I saw more and more of the ridiculousness of it. But my duty to the Sea Org and to mankind was never in question, ever. So that's what, you know, so I was very dedicated. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm just putting all that out there so you get the idea because I can't tell from how you asked the question whether this is some kind of a setup question or whether it's just something you're kind of curious about or what you know could I have easily could you easily have blown like yes I could have easily blown uh, you know physically speaking that could have been that way but um, but it was never there was never a risk of that happening.
Tyler Simmons. I notice that religious fundamentalists, like Christians and Muslims, tend to think in black and white, but they are not the only type of people to do so. Is this black and white thinking built into the DNA of these religions like destruction is built into the DNA of Scientology? Hey Tyler, thanks for this question. Uh, it's actually a little bit of a complicated answer because yes and no. <laughs> okay, so why? Um, you know, yes, it is built into the, the, I think I would say the organizational structure, the organized religion aspect of these uh, fundamentalist groups that the black and white thinking be instilled in members through the indoctrination, through the practices, through the, the, the speeches and the, the, even the prayers or the, you know, the sermons and stuff. Um, this indoctrination is constantly occurring that we're the only good guys, everybody else are all the bad guys, or at least they're not the saved people, and we are the saved people, and so therefore we're better than, we're more exalted, we're more righteous, you know, choose your word, we're more fill in the blank. Um, you know, but basically all it sums up to is that we are better than everybody else because of our special kinship, bond, you know, belief, uh, idea, whatever, right? Uh, again, fill in the blank. So, um, so yes, it is built into the DNA of these groups to continue that kind of thinking by, you know, through indoctrination. However, more importantly, these organizations are like that, and they're set up that way only because we're like that. All of us. Uh, there is not one human being who is immune to the idea of tribalism or the, the, the pull or <laughs> seduction of tribalism, right? It's an instinctive thing. You know, it's, it's, it's like I was talking about bias in my podcast. It's not, it's not something you have to think about at all. It just happens. You know, we, there is no such thing as a you know, as a, as a human being who doesn't have a social instinct of some kind. Uh, you put it on a scale, say some people are better at it than others, fine, but everybody's got it. And that tribalism that we are, uh, that's kind of built into us, automatically sets up us versus them, right? You have to, because you have to be in any environment you're ever going to be in, you have to do a threat assessment and you have to understand what aspects, what parts of this environment are not safe for me. Either that's poison or that's a, you know, killer uh, tiger or that's a killer clown or, you know, like what, what's, the, what's the things I have to watch out for? So, you know, and then who are my allies? Also, that's the other assessment that gets done of the environment. So it's us versus them, right? And when it comes to, you know, human beings, we're so uh, pervasive and we are so varied, so multivaried, that it's easy for, you know, almost any group to uh, focus up and, and center and, and say we're us and everybody else is them, you know. Uh, any group does this kind of thing. It's the extremists are the ones who dial it up to 11, right, like as, I, as I'm fond of saying. So... Uh, but but the but extremists wouldn't be able to dial anything up to eleven if it wasn't already there to be dialed up. Okay, I think I, I think I made the point. So I hope that answers your question, Cassie Alsop. I was rewatching season two of Leah's show, and they showed a policy letter listing suppressive acts, and the date of the issue was twenty three December nineteen sixty five. R B. What does the R B stand for? 
Hey, thanks, Cassie, for asking this. This is a great question because I haven't. I, I, I'm surprised it hasn't been asked before. Um, L. Ron Hubbard wrote lots and lots of policies and bulletins, and every single one of them had a date at, stamped at the top of it, right? The day that it was issued. Uh, 23 December 1965 was the day that Hubbard probably didn't set it down to a piece of paper. He probably wrote it a few days before, but that was the date that it got typed and issued officially as church policy. Sometimes there would be multiple issues uh, put out on a single day. So one of them would be issue one, the next one would be issue two. It would say issue one, issue two below the date. Now on the RB part, sometimes policies or bulletins were revised after they were already issued. And so there had to be some way to show that you were reading uh, the revised copy. And so what they did, the, the, the um, symbolic representation of that, is the R after the date. So 23 December 1965 R means that's the issue that's revised from the issue that was originally issued on that date. Now the B comes in because let's say it gets revised again. Okay, you don't want to do RR. You know, after you revise an issue, sometimes issues have been revised many times. You have a whole string of R's following the date. That would get a little ridiculous, you know, RRRR, right? So instead, it, it, the second revision was RA. The third revision, RB, right? Which is in this case, the 23 December uh, 1965 RB indicates that it's the third revision of this issue. Something was changed in it. And in the Mimeo copies of the issues, they would actually say what was changed in parentheses at the top of the bulletin. So this was the Mimeo, this was how bulletins and, and, this, and policy letters were originally issued. There weren't books and volumes of them. They were just individual issues. And these were mimeographed and sent off to all of the orgs. Uh, multiple copies of them would be sent, and the, or a stencil would be sent, and the org had its own mimeo machine, and it would mimeo as many copies as needed locally. And uh, so this whole RARB system was put in place so that you always knew you were reading the correct issue of the bulletin um, in question. So there you go. Mark P., when I was first in Scientology long ago, the mission's executive director was very dictatorial and reminds me a lot of David Miscavige now, but on a smaller scale. Anyone who crossed him was tossed out of the mission and he would attempt to get them declared suppressive, much more difficult in the 70s. How much did slash does this occur in the top positions of past and current orgs? Hey, yeah, this happens all the time. Not all orgs. I was overseeing 34 churches of Scientology as a manager overseeing West US, and that included three Sea Org orgs and then 31 Class 5 orgs, or local city level churches. Uh, so during that time, I interacted, during the eight years that I was doing this, I interacted with every executive director from every single one of these orgs and many of the staff of these different orgs as I went around either out to those orgs on different projects, or just interacted with them through the telexes and, and dispatches and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and after a few years of this, you really get a familiarity with who all the staff are and how everything's working and who's got a temper and who doesn't. And there were definitely 
a few of the Class 5's uh, executive directors, the org, the org EDs, as we would call them, who uh, were little Napoleons. And they were really, really harsh, dictatorial, authoritarian types. Uh, heavy ethics, you know, stringent application of policy in the worst possible interpretation. Uh, there was one, uh, Joy, uh, from Stevens Creek. Man, she was a real tyrant. I mean, she was scary to work for. Staff were actually afraid of her. And this was this became a problem. I remember doing a, a little eval on Stevens Creek one time and, and came up with the fact that, you know, all this ED did was push ethics. She never corrected the staff. She never cared for them. She never saw that they got auditing or training, you know, except for, you know, following policy. She wasn't, she didn't care about the staff. And, um, and this just came across over and over and over again. Her direct juniors uh, were one of, one of the people I dealt with, what, that I was sending orders to, were one of the people she was uh, ordering around on a day-to-day -day basis. And he was just, uh, he was a mess. You know, I look back at it now and I go, man, this guy was like kind of PTSD-ish. I mean, seriously, it was bad. Um, and I didn't, of course, have any recognition of what that looked like or what that was or anything about that when I was in the Sea Org. I just knew this guy was in rough shape and, uh, and I, you know, did what I could to help him out. So uh, when I wasn't yelling at him too, of course, because I was a Sea Org member. So anyway, uh, that was one example, right? Uh, it was out in Stevens Creek. There are other examples for sure uh, of EDs who would definitely be, you know, uh, quite harsh. But uh, I think Joy pretty much took the cake for West US as the harshest. I think uh, Jeannie Sonnenfeld uh, takes the cake on that in the Eastern United States. Uh, she was, uh, anyway, that's just for uh, former insiders. There you go. Jean Edmonds. I'm aware of the upcoming court case concerning Jane Doe and more recently from your podcast with Michael Krieger. Do you think the courts are actually listening to ex-Scientologists bringing litigation? Do you feel more positive about the outcome? In a recent podcast with Marcy Hamilton, you guys talked about bringing abusers in all cults to justice by taking away the religious umbrella they hide under as a form of religious immunity, but prosecute the individual involved in the crime. Do you feel this could be the turning point for all litigations brought against Scientology and or any other cult? If Scientology loses the case against Jane Doe, would this have an impact on their tax-exempt status? How would they talk their way out of that? Okay, great questions. Um, yes, I am optimistic uh, and hopeful about the outcome of these Jane Doe series of cases, and I hope that um, that they do, you know, obviously succeed in what they are trying to accomplish and show that there are criminal activities that occur, uh, you know, within the Church of Scientology and by the Church of Scientology. Uh, now, other than that, I'm not going to really talk about that case too much. Um, as far as how do I feel about um, my talk with Marcy Hamilton and how she is approaching prosecution of, you know, religious figures who are abusing their religious figurehood, so to speak, by uh, through pedophilia, sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm very, very hopeful about that, as we went over in the podcast, and I hope that uh, this, I know it's going to take time, but the ball is rolling, so to speak, right? The snowball has started going down the hill. It's just a matter now of continuing that, not, not letting it stop, and I think we're going to see, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years. I think it's not going to be 
um, a thing anymore to bring a religious figure into a courtroom for on criminal charges for actual criminal acts. And I, I you know, we're, we're, I think we're, we're now reached a point or we're getting to that point where the courts themselves, the judges, the actual judges who, let's face it, most of them are old timers, <laughs> you know, been around for a while and they're still, their heads are back in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So, you know, it's going to, that's why it takes time for this kind of change to happen. But I think we're now seeing that uh, the beginnings of what I think will be a common idea that, oh, religious figures aren't any different from anybody else. They're the same, they're human, and they're, they're subject to the same foibles and problems and issues and psychological problems that anybody else is. Just because they're a, you know, a, a preacher, minister, uh, uh, mullah, you know, whatever uh, the word is for all the different religions, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. You're still, a, you're still a person underneath all that. And, uh, and that means you're going to have all kinds of crazy ideas and urges and all kinds of other nonsense. Uh, and maybe you can't control yourself. And, and if so, then, you know, there you are in court. So, yeah, I do think that's going to keep rolling out. Now, you also asked about, uh, could this be the turning point for all litigations against Scientology or other cults? Mm, I wouldn't, I'm not going to be so bold as to say that. I think we still got a little ways to go on this. But, uh, but I, th I think, the, like I said, I think everything's kind of moving in the right direction. And um, as far as that, the Jane Doe case having a, on uh, some kind of a impact on the tax-exempt status, um, possibly, possibly. But I don't, think, I don't think directly it's going to. Um, you know, I, I'm saying possibly because I don't know all the legal ramifications and, and potentialities of how this case could roll out or what other cases might be in the chain of, of lineup here that could may, maybe even be worse than the Jane Doe one. Like, who knows, right? What I do know is that Scientology is masterful at finding scapegoats. That is all they do all day long, if you think about it, right, in the Sea Org. And, and, Dave, and we already know from uh, the Marty Rathbun case that the Church of Scientology as an entity will fall on the sword for David Miscavige. It will absolutely take responsibility for anything if it, free, if it clears David Miscavige from blame or um, you know, any kind of criminal prosecution, right? We know this is the case. That's what they did already. So... If it were to come up that, you know, if this Jane Doe lawsuit, for example, is successful and there are individuals in the church who are directly responsible for false imprisonment, kidnapping, etc., the, the things, the, the charges that she's bringing, um, which are, again, it's a civil suit, right? So this isn't a criminal case, but she's still suing over these things. Um, if it was shown that, uh, you know, who was responsible for this stuff, Everybody between her and David Miscavige would take full responsibility for all of it and do whatever they needed to do, say whatever they needed to say to, you know, free David Miscavige of any possibility of any guilt, right? And they will lie through their teeth for him, uh, unquestioningly, unthinkingly, that will happen. So, uh, so that is how they would talk their way out of it, so to speak, because that's how David Miscavige avoids taking blame for anything uh, and never has to be responsible for anything, is because he's always got somebody else under him to blame, right? That's, 
That's how he operates. So uh, that is the answer to that question. I hope that uh, was informative. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me go on here about this. Uh, I love your questions. Please keep them coming. Uh, put them in the comment section here. And if you find my show entertaining, informative, and uh, educational, then please consider joining me on Patreon because uh, that's what keeps the lights on here and keeps me going to be able to do this for you. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.